Okay, if you have your Bibles, if you can turn to Philippians 2, we're going to head straight there. As Mike says, we're going to be continuing our series, working our way through the letter to the Philippians, a letter written by the Apostle Paul. And the title that we've given this series is Joy, the Message of the Philippians. We're a few weeks in now. We're up to chapter 2 and verse 12. Just while you're finding your way there, I just wondering if, if you can relate to this or whether this is just something that I've experienced. Have you ever had those conversations where someone just starts talking to you and you just feel like, have I just come in the middle of half, like halfway through the conversation? Like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then what you realise is that the other person's actually kind of done the other half of the conversation in their head and just brought you into it when they've kind of worked it all out for themselves. And it's something that's it's good, because I was worried there, that it's just something that Steph and I experienced. But it happens quite often in our household. Uh, and you just, for that moment, you're like, I'm a little bit lost. You need to just take a few steps back and catch me up to, to where we're at. Well, it's good. People can relate to that. The reason I'm saying this is because in uh, Philippians 2 verse 12, which is, the, verse 12 is where we're, we're going to be starting our focus this morning. Verse 12 actually starts with the word therefore. The word therefore means that what's coming is relating or is going to be built upon what has come before it. So what we're going to do, rather than reading from verse 12 this morning, we're going to go back to the start of chapter 2. And so we can set it in the context, so we can understand what's come before. In a sense, so, it, so we can get the whole conversation rather than just coming in halfway through. So we want the whole conversation of what Paul is saying. Because then when this therefore comes in, we know what he's relating back to. So we're going to be picking up, as I say, from the start of chapter 2. It's going to be up on the screens if you want to follow along with me. So from verse 2, we're going up to verse 18 this morning. So this is Paul to the church. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be poured out, that I did not run in, in vain or labour in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Got some crickets in. It's all right. 
At Christmas this year, um, Steph had bought me a book. I'm a bit ashamed to say I've only just started reading it, like in May now. Uh, and it was a biography of Michael Jordan, the basketball player. He was a, a professional basketball player in America, uh, went professional late 80s and played for, I think it was 14 years or so into the early 2000s and uh, it's a really fascinating book and Michael Jordan some would uh, many would argue is the greatest basketball player that that's ever played some would even go as far to say he's the greatest sports person that there's ever been and I myself would be someone that would would agree with that as far as I'm concerned he's the greatest sports person that's ever been he completely changed the game he opened it up to a whole new audience drew people in uh, and his style of play was like nothing that had really come before he completely revolutionized the game. And what happened was, with him coming through, many young people looked up to him. They modelled their game on him. His jersey number 23 was often picked up by the, be the best players on the other teams. That's how coaches knew who the best players on the other teams were, by looking at who was wearing number 23. He had such an influence. And for me, personally, when I played basketball at school and through university, I used to wear a sweatband up my forearm, because that's what Michael Jordan did. I even named one of my hamsters after him. That's a little bit sad, isn't it? But such is the influence of him. You see, people wanted to be like Mike. Michael Jordan, Mike, sorry. They wanted to be like Mike. And this was something that was picked up by companies. In 1992, there was a sports drink company. They put out a commercial based on that idea. The idea being, if we can show the drink that Michael Jordan drinks, and you want to be like Mike, you need to drink what Michael Jordan drinks. And, uh, and it was this whole thing, and the, kind of the tagline of the commercial was, like Mike, and they had a song, I'm not going to do it, but it's a good one, and it's all about how you want to be like Mike. And in 2015, 23 years later, they bought the commercial back, such is the influence that he had. People want to be like Mike. We'll come back to that in a second. You see, because in this passage, in Philippians 2, Paul is calling the church to unity. And he's explaining what this unity looks like. And as he does so, he turns his focus to Jesus. So and you want to know what unity looks like? You want to know what humility looks like? Let's have a look at Jesus. And that passage of scripture uh, is often referred to, as, it's referred to as the hymn of Christ. Because really it's a song. It's a song about who Jesus is. About what it meant for him. What it cost for him to come amongst us. For him to give himself for us. His life death and resurrection and really if you look at it in the song the emphasis is on Jesus obedience and on his humility what Paul presents is not it's not a theological presentation it's not a theological argument or explanation in and of itself it's I think it's something rather different than that what Paul is doing is actually he's extending to us he's offering us an invitation to become more like Jesus that's what he's presenting. He's saying, look, you've got an opportunity here. Look at Jesus. Be like him. Become like him. But it's an invitation that is rooted in the person and work of Jesus. The truth, of who, the, sorry, the truth that we are in him and that he is in us. Paul's song is not be like Mike. There's a temptation, not just a temptation. I think there's something about us where, where we, we can be drawn to people we think, I want to be like that person. There's something about that person I want to be like. And say, you, you could use Michael Jordan as one example, but there'd be countless others that you could use. But for Paul, he's utterly convinced, actually, he's like, there's only one place you need to look. This isn't a message of be like Mike. This is be like Jesus, is what Paul's saying. You need to look to Jesus. Be like Jesus. Look to him as your example. 
And this is what brings us up to verse 12. And our, our therefore comes in here. So because of that, because of what Paul's just said, because of calling our attention to Jesus and looking at Jesus, therefore, in light of what Paul's just said, with the life of Jesus before us, with the example of Jesus in our view, what is our response to be? Which is what Paul goes on to explain. What is an appropriate and worthy response? That's going to be our focus for this morning. If you're someone who likes to take notes, or if you, even if you're just a curious sort of person, my sermon for this morning is Lights in the World. This is what Paul is calling the church to be. Really, this is the culmination of his message that we're going to be looking at this morning. This is what he's building up to, this call for the church to be shining like lights in the world. This morning, we're going to work through each of the verses from verse 12, building up towards that call to be lights in the world. But what I want us to do is to keep in mind throughout all of it, remember, Paul is writing in the context of unity. This is about working it out together. This is not something that we just work out as individuals. We do it in the context of community. We do it in the context of family. So therefore, Paul says, and he resumes his call for unity in the light of the obedience of Jesus. So in verse 8 that we read, he focuses on the obedience that Jesus showed, that he was obedient to the point of death on the cross. And then he calls us to the same obedience that Jesus showed in verse 12 but he does it by commending and praising the Philippian church for the obedience that they've already shown they're doing well in it it's something he wants to acknowledge and to praise them for and to encourage them in keep pressing on you're doing so well and he says you've done it when I was with you it's like but even more so when I'm not there you need to keep pressing on in obedience you're doing well but keep going Because the call to obedience is not one that we can kind of dip in and out of. It's a lifelong call. might not sound like the most exciting or the glamorous, most glamorous thing to be commended on or known for. But I tell you what, God has an extremely high view of obedience. John 14, 15. Jesus, he said that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's a relationship there between love for God, love for Jesus, and the lives that we live in terms of our obedience. There's a theologian called Nathaniel Emmons. He said that obedience to God is the most infallible evidence of sincere and supreme love to him. Effectively, what he's saying is that obedience is a response. It's a response, and it's a response that is fundamental to God bringing about his purpose within us. Let me just explain a little bit more what I mean by that. In Romans 8, 28 to 30, towards, 28 to 30, so towards the end of that chapter, it says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed or to be changed to the image of his son, so into the image of Jesus, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God's purpose for you and for me is that we grow in the likeness of Jesus. There's a process of maturing, of growing into, becoming more like his son. And again, this is what Paul's emphasizing over and over again. He's saying, look, you need to look to Jesus. He's your example of obedience. He's your example of humility. 
Because that's what God's purpose for you is, to become more like Jesus. I want us to think a little bit about rest, sounds nice, and activity. I want us to think about both of those. Because growing in the likeness of Christ, growing in the likeness of Jesus, needs both. It needs both rest and it needs both activity. Not a sense of jumping from one to another, so a period of rest, a period of activity, but actually a blend of both rest and activity in the sense that we are both resting confidently in who we are in Christ, we're resting in our identity in Christ, and also in what God is doing within us. So not what we're doing, but what God is working within us. So there's that on one sense, resting confidently in who we are in Christ and what God is doing, while also, on the other hand, actively pursuing what God has for us. Can we see? So it's rest and activity working together. And we need a balance between reliance on God, total reliance on God, while also taking personal responsibility before him. One of the things that came up quite a lot in the commentaries as I was reading was this phrase, let go and let God. That sense of God will do it all. And they're saying, actually, that's not the most helpful message because what, what Paul is saying here is, yes, let God, let God work in you. God is going to work in you. But partner with him, in it, Because you've got a responsibility as well for becoming more like Jesus. And this is what Paul outlines in verse 12 to 13. So let's touch firstly on our, our activity, our responsibility. Paul says that you are to work out your salvation. Something that we're to, to live out. It's something that we're to work out. In the second week of this series, uh, I spent a bit of time, we, we actually jumped to Colossians 3. So part of another letter that Paul wrote. I'd encourage you to look at it again this week, just to, to have a look over what he says there. Because in Colossians 3, what Paul does is he speaks of how in Christ, our old self has died. So in Christ, our old self has died and we're to put off the old things. We're to put away the old ways of thinking, the old ways of living, the old ways of doing that were not compatible with uh, a lifestyle that of, of obedience, a lifestyle that is, is um, lived out of, of, of relationship with God. We're to put off those old things and we're to put on the new things which are compatible with being a follower of Jesus. And really those are the things that are making us more like Jesus. Putting off the old things that aren't like him, but putting on the new things that aren't. And there's a transformation that, sh- that will come about in our lives. You have a, respers- a responsible. You have a personal responsibility in living out, or as Paul calls it, in working out your salvation. It's important that we, I make this distinction clear. He does not say, this is not about working for your salvation. This is about working out your salvation. That passage that I read in Romans about being conformed to the image of Jesus, being conformed to change into the image of his son, it also says that God has called, and those he has called, he has justified. To be justified means that you've been made right with God. That's happened. Your salvation is a gift of God that's been given to you. So we don't work for that, but we work out our salvation as a response to what God has done for us. Brian Chappell guy called Brian Chappell, he said that we are called to obey God's imperatives 
So we're called to, sorry, we're called to obey God's imperatives as a consequence and never a condition of divine love. So obedience is not a means to achieving something from God. It's not a means to achieving God's love or achieving salvation. But it's a response that comes from it. The fact that we have been saved. The fact that God loved us first. Salvation is a gift of God. But it causes us to live differently. It causes us to live differently. You cannot have salvation in God and carry on living the same as you did before. It brings about change in our lives. Our old self is dead through the gospel. And this is a day that we need to be reminded of this daily. Because this is a battle that we will face daily. We need to put off the old self. And put on the new. And Paul says we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. The grounding for this fear and trembling. This isn't a threat that's being made here. It's not a fear of never being good enough. It's not a fear of... God's rejection. It's not a fear of, of losing your salvation. Because a fear, like, a fear like that, if we live in fear of God in that respect, it will cause us to try and earn our salvation. It will try and make, it will try and, where well, we will just try and make ourselves good enough for, for God. That's what a fear like that will do. But Romans 8 tells us, there is now no condemnation for those who are, in, who are in Christ Jesus. So it's not a fear like that that Paul's talking about. Because condemnation, the punishment that, that we faced, has been dealt with on the cross. It's been dealt with once and for all. But this fear that Paul's talking about, Stephen Lawson in one of his commentaries, he puts it like this. He says that this fear is wholesome reverential awe for God and a sober realisation of the need to take him seriously. I think that's a very helpful definition, if we call it that, helpful way of looking at it. Let me repeat it. So this fear is wholesome, reverential awe for God and a sober realisation of the need to take him seriously. God is our father. God is our friend. God loves us. All of those things are absolutely true. God is also the creator of the universe. He is powerful. He is holy. He is awesome. He is majestic. We need to be wary of being too familiar, too casual, or too complacent in our relationship with him. And it can be quite easy to... I think it can be... There is a danger there that we can, we can slip into that place. We need to have a, a true picture of who God is. And a realisation that, that we need to, need to take him seriously in that sense. I think we also need to guard against a shallow view of salvation. Because our salvation was costly. That's what Paul put forward in that, the hymn of Christ that he puts the start of. Philippians 2, talking about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That is costly, what Jesus did. Your salvation was costly. So let's not have too shallow a view of, of our salvation. A couple of weeks ago, uh, in, our, in our house, I noticed there was something on our TV screen. And I went up and had a look, and there was a sticker 
that someone had put on our telly and I thought, that well, Steph wouldn't do that. I don't think Steph would do it. So I said to our daughter, Eva, she's two years old, I said, Eva, I said, have you put stickers on our telly? And she said that she had, and I, told, I had a conversation about why you're not to touch the television and it's not, it needs to be left alone. Uh, and then Steph had said, so we'd had this chat, and Steph had said, you need to, you need to say sorry to Daddy, because what you did was wrong. And she went, sorry, Dad, and then she stopped halfway through. You could see her thinking, and she turned to Steph, and she said, me not say sorry to Daddy. It was only a little sticker, it wasn't a big one. <laughs> and part of me, I was like, I kind of thought, good for you. I'm like, yeah. She's got this sense of what's right and what's wrong and trying to work it out for herself and standing up for herself. So I was like, actually, that's a good thing. That's part of growing up. I thought, yeah, good for you. But at the same point, it gave us an opportunity to talk to her about the fact it doesn't matter if it was a little one or a big one, you're not to touch the television. So it, was, it worked out well in that sense. But it got me thinking about the way that I can be with God. God, I'll give you the big areas of my life. I'll give all of those things to you, but there are certain parts of my life I'm going to hold on to myself. I'll be obedient to you in, some of the, in the bigger things, but the smaller things, it's only a little thing. I know I can be like that with God sometimes. Or there can be behaviour that I know is not pleasing to God. And I can say, it's, it's just a little thing. I don't need to say sorry for that. It's just a little thing. Surely that's okay. And it got me thinking, particularly in the run-up to this week, do I take God seriously? Is my view of salvation too shallow? Because it will affect the way I respond to God in, in my obedience. So we've got that activity. That's our responsibility to work out our salvation. But we've got activity and rest. Paul says, it is God who works in you. God is working in you. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 to 18 says that the Lord is the spirit. and Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Can we see the common thing that's coming through here? Being transformed into the image of Christ. For this, this comes from the Lord who is the spirit so we are being transformed into the image of jesus it's a process that takes time uh, that takes place over time it's not something that happens overnight or in the in the moment where you put your trust in jesus it's a lifelong process of growth and maturity but it, it comes from god it's god working in us through his holy spirit god is continually active in your life bringing you into maturity God, the creator of the universe, powerful, holy, awesome, majestic, he is working in us both to will and to work. That's what Paul says. I think what that means is that through the Spirit we're given godly desires. He gives us the will, the, the desire to press on into the things that he has for us. The desire to, to, to be putting off the old self. And putting on the new self. The desire to be living in, in an appropriate way in relationship with God. And it's the same spirit who gives us that will and those desires. But it's the same spirit who empowers us to follow through on that. He's the one who equips us. 
He's the one who empowers us. We don't do it in our own strength. He's the one that gives us the, the, who empowers us to do it. You see, in working out our salvation, it's God's love and enabling grace that will see us through. Paul says that God works in you both to, to, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's why God does it. That's why God is working in you. That's why God is bringing about a change in you, a process of becoming more like Jesus for his good pleasure. God is actively engaged because he loves you. God is actively engaged in your life because it gives him pleasure to see you growing into the likeness of Jesus. This raises some questions that I want to put out there. These are questions that came to me to think of for myself, so I thought if they're good for me, I'm going to put them out for you as well. Something to think about. What is God saying to you at the moment? What desires is He putting within you? Are there any areas of your life that you are not submitting to God? You are not giving to God? Are there any areas of your life where you know you're not walking in obedience to God? Even in the seemingly small things. And the last question I've got is this. Because it's one thing to know it. But the last question is this. What is your response going to be to the answers? So we're to work out our salvation. It's God who works in us for his good pleasure. And Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in, uh, in vain, or labour in vain. Paul's words here recall Israel when they were in the wilderness. So when, uh, when Moses had led them out of out of captivity in Egypt and they were in the wilderness. This is what Paul's referring back to with these words. They were loved by God, chosen by him, set apart by him and for him, given a, 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 a calling to go and be a blessing to the nations. All the nations would be blessed by God's people. But their progress was hindered by their grumbling and by their disputing. I think it talks about that in 1 Corinthians 10, I think it is. It was grumbling, just uh, an attitude, uh, a lifestyle, a culture of grumbling. Grumbling towards God and about God. Grumbling to Moses and about Moses. A lot of complaining going on. And in Deuteronomy 32.5, Moses says that far from being a blessing to the nations, they are a crooked and twisted generation. What that means is that it's a phrase for people turning away from the Lord and finding other gods, is, a, I think, a good way of understanding it. Those are, those are, are Moses' words. He says, you're a crooked and twisted generation. That's the same words that Paul uses here. And in using the same words, Paul is saying to the Philippians, take this, take this as a warning. Don't be like that. Don't be like that. Do all things, he says, without grumbling or disputing. Do all things. Is that specific enough for us? Do all things. 
He doesn't get specific on certain areas of life, certain activities. He doesn't say, uh, this is, I, w- I want you to do these things. And in this way, he says, do all things. Because he's calling not for, not for, for certain, a certain lifestyle or certain activities in that sense. What he's actually calling for is a certain sort of person. He's calling for a certain sort of attitude that carries across all areas of life. Do all things with this right attitude. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. This isn't solely about what is spoken or heard. It's not just about what we express. Because the words that Paul uses, if you, if you go back and look at the, the, the words in the Greek, they're, they're words, um, they refer to that which is expressed outwardly, but also something that is wholly inward. It's about what goes on inside. It's about the mindset. It's about the heart. It's about the attitude. He's calling out an attitude or a heart that is just critical or contentious. Whether or not it's expressed. That's not really, the, the, that's not really what Paul's getting to. In our garden we've become aware that we've got some nasty plant that's just decided to spread everywhere. And we know that if we want to get rid of it, it's no good just to, to pull out what you can see on the top. We're going to have to deal with what's going on in the roots because otherwise it's just going to keep coming through. Paul's saying actually it's not just about what's on the surface and what's seen and what's heard. You need to get right to the root of what's going on here. Because we can't have, have you living with this character or this attitude. In life, and thinking about in the context of unity within the church, within the church family there are going to be questions, there are going to be concerns, there are going to be differences of opinion. That's going to happen. That's what happens when you get people together. That's going to be the case. And if we expect otherwise we're we're in for a bit of a shock and we're not really seeing things as they are Paul's not saying that these things are to be ignored or pushed to the side or never made known actually there's a right way to share our concerns and to to, um, share differences of opinion and to ask questions and that sort of thing but the issue here is the attitude of the heart and the way in which things are expressed and worked out Paul says, you want to see what an attitude of grumbling and an attitude of disputing will result in? Look at what Moses said of Israel. Because that's, what, that's where you'll end up. Paul poured out his life, looking to the day that Jesus would return. Not with grumbling, but if we read on towards the end of the passage, he doesn't talk about having a grumbling attitude or, or a lifestyle of grumbling. He speaks about rejoicing. Being someone who was full of joy. He was suffering. He was in prison. He had suffered a lot in his life. And in the midst of suffering, living in humility with Jesus as his example, he's rejoicing. And he encourages us to rejoice also. That's the kind of culture that Paul is calling us to have. Don't have a culture of grumbling Uh, and disputing don't be like that have a culture of rejoicing and enjoy and for Paul he's he's got he's got the return of Jesus Jesus coming back for his bride that's what he's fixing his eyes on see the result the consequence of working out our salvation so our responsibility 
but partnering with God, activity and rest, working out our, our salvation. Of being a people who do all things without grumbling or disputing. Paul says, rather than being a crooked and twisted generation, actually, you will shine like lights in the world. You see, he's built to this point where he's saying, church, this is who you are called to be. This is what's waiting for you if you live with Jesus as as your example. If you live with this attitude that I'm really encouraging you to live in. In the midst of of a crooked and twisted generation, you'll be the ones that shine like lights in the world. The world will notice you. Just like light, light in the darkness, there's contrast, isn't there? You can't miss it. There's a contrast between light and dark. So there is to be a contrast between us and the world. We're to shine like lights in the world. We're to be noticeably different. And if we're to be noticeably different, if we're to shine like lights in the world, then we're also to be seen, aren't we? We're not to hide away. Because the way in which we live, our lifestyle, our witness for Jesus, it will be through our words, but it will also be through our behaviour. It will be through when people look at the church uh, to see actually is there unity within the church. All of those things combined will speak a message out to the rest of the world. We're not to be hidden away. We shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Holding fast to the, script, holding fast to the scriptures or holding to, to the gospel of Jesus. We hold fast to the gospel of Jesus. Phil Moore, in his commentary in Philippians, he says that the Greek phrase that Paul uses for holding fast, he says it's deliberately ambiguous in that it can mean either holding firmly onto the word of life, so it can be that, or it could mean holding out the word of life, offering it. So it could be, delib- it could be holding onto for ourselves or holding out to offer to others. He says it's deliberately ambiguous because Paul wants us to do both. We're to continually apply the gospel to our old life, our, our, our own lives. Let Jesus, let's be shaped by the gospel of Jesus. So continually that, continually applying that to our own lives, but also continually sharing it with other people. It's not to be kept to ourselves. Adam. Where are you, sir? Are you able to come up? We're going to have a time responding in a minute. I wasn't rounding you up like that, sorry. <laughs> in John 17, if you were to read John 17, there's a, there's a prayer there. That, that This is Jesus praying to his Father. And it's a prayer for... For his people. It's Jesus praying on our behalf. And in John 17, 14 to 19. Jesus was praying this. To God. On behalf of his people. He says, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. But that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world sanctify them in the truth so sanctifying is that process of becoming more like Jesus so make them more like me in the truth your word is truth and as you sent me into the world so I have sent them into the world 
And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Phil Moore, who I mentioned a while ago, I read something by him the other day, not in his commentary this time, but on Twitter. And he was picking up on this passage, of, on these few verses. And he tweeted quite simply, but I thought it was very profound. He said, in these verses, Jesus is praying this. He's saying, Father, don't let them become disconnected from the people in the world. And then Fillmore goes on to say, Satan loves Christian cliques. Where Christians just kind of huddle together and stick together. Where it's kind of closed off and not seen. Jesus didn't call for us to live in these kind of nice cliques that are shut off from the world. He said, actually, just as God sent him into the world, he sends us into the world. Just emphasises again what Paul is saying. Actually, if you build your life on Jesus, if you take hold of your responsibility, but also rest in what God is doing in you, if you have the right attitude among yourself as a body, you're going to shine like lights in the world. You're not going to be hidden. People are going to see it. Cliques are safe. Cliques are comfortable. Do you know what? Sometimes they're quite appealing. But they are never, we are never called to be that. We are to shine as lights in the world and lights are not meant to be hidden. They're to bring light into the darkness.